Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. With inflation cooling, Black Friday shopping proved to be better than feared this year, but many consumers were disappointed with the magnitude of the discounts. So what does this mean for the consumer discretionary and staples sectors as we head into the new year? And how might it affect your portfolio positioning? Joining us to provide insights into consumer behavior, economic trends, and the potential impact on various sectors in the coming months are Fidelity Equity Research Analysts Brendan Cochran and Andrew Hall. Brendan highlights that e-commerce was a clear Black Friday winner, showing significant growth. He explains the impact of over-inventory through the year that might have led to the weaker-than-expected Black Friday discounts. Andrew moves the discussion to the grocer sector, noting that food prices remain high and there are still concerns around inflation in 2024. The conversation also touches on trade downtrends, potential government interventions, and the economic outlook for 2024. They also delve into specific industries such as the telecom and auto sector, discussing potential challenges and opportunities. Take a listen. This podcast was recorded on December 5th, 2023. Let's begin with Black Friday. Why not? Let's begin with how this all shaped up. we've got sort of a more decisive look at what was spent. We mentioned that it wasn't as bad as feared. What, what did we see that, that both of you liked? Sure. So the data that we got, um, it, it seems like e-commerce was the clear winner this year. It always is, yeah. isn't it? Or it has it, it, it is. Um, and so e-commerce was up high single digits, call it 8 or 9% year over year, um, which I think was good, especially off a difficult comp. It was very strong last year as well. Um, Brick and mortar was better than feared. I think there was some concern that we would see negative year over year same same store sales on Black Friday. And we saw positive low single digits up 2%, something like that. Um, So that was better than feared. Um, So so consumers showed up, um, but I think consumers were still disappointed. And they were disappointed because of the the magnitude of discounting, which uh, in our data we saw was, was not that good this year. Um, and the most common feedback I heard, you know, when I'm checking Twitter and forums and that kind of thing is consumers complaining that the deals that they did see weren't as good as what they saw back to school in late August, September, October. And as a consumer analyst, that actually makes sense to me. The retail landscape was over inventory the entire year. Um, Walmart and Target had, has been talk, talking about that for a year now. So end of summer was the real clear out portion to get inventories back to normal levels. So unfortunately, where the real discounts are. that's where the discounts were. Yep. So everywhere had pretty disappointing discounts, except for telecom in, in Canada. We saw some pretty good discounting in telecom, but that was the difference. Back to that, yeah. there's, a, there's a big piece of the telecom story. Okay, so we'll come back to that. Andrew, um, covering grocers, other areas within the staples it's not necessarily the Black Friday blowout that it would be for consumer discretion, or is it? Take us through what you saw. Yeah, unfortunately for consumers, as everyone knows, food prices are still high. Yes. There wasn't a blowout on Black Friday, and you wouldn't expect that given the nature of the industry. But what you are seeing over the last few months has been a slowing of inflation. Yes. Part of this is a seasonal trend, um, but part of it may be encouraging. And of course, if we rewind the tape back into September, when inflation was still extremely high, there was a lot of concern about government intervention and a lot of political noise. And remember the, government, the, the grocers were hauled in front of some of the ministers ahead of Thanksgiving, you have to give us a plan. And there was concern about what could that intervention look like? Feels like with the fall economic update behind us and a few months of slowing prices, the risk of anything draconian or very negative has abated. 
Um, but there's still certainly some pressures for inflation into 2024 when you start to see those calendarized uh, price increases, particularly for the center store dry goods items. Um, so it's not necessarily a clear picture, but it seems like we're not at the risk of the peak levels of inflation that we saw in 2022. So just quickly on what could it have looked like? Give, give us an example of what grocers well, feared or you know, what was the context for that? So I think that Certainly, the focus is on how can we get prices down, and the government sort of realized a little bit that there's not necessarily a specific regulatory mechanism whereby they can do that. They'd have to legislate something quite new. Like and, France. And they could have looked into, mm -hmm. yeah, globally, there were some countries like France that instituted a price list and said, these staple goods, everyone needs to buy them, and so you actually can't change the prices on those. That would have been closer to a worst case outcome for the grocers. Uh, we haven't seen that in Canada. I don't think there was discussion of that. Yeah, fascinating. So. Andrew, I want to ask you a little bit about the continuation of trends. Uh, we'll get into this. This is, this is a rate story, but what have you noticed in terms of, um, sorry, I'll go to you first, Brendan, um, in terms of, well, you'll say what it is, but the, people are paying less for things. Yeah. So the big one to talk about really is telecom. And I think just like how Andrew was saying about government intervention, the grocers, I think the telecoms were probably concerned that this could have happened to them as well. Hmm. Um, so they took actions into their own hands. Um, and what they've done over the past few years is things like removing data overage fees, changing how international roaming works. It's no longer per megabyte of data. It's now per day of data. So I think a lot of us remember those shocking $100 extra charges. Those t don't really exist anymore. Um, and finally, pricing. They've done a lot on flankers. So, you know, Rogers has Fido, Bell has Virgin, Telus has Kudo. Um, all of those, you can get pretty attractive plans at $39 a month now. Um, and this is all showing up in the data. In the October CPI print for Canada, where overall CPI was up 3.1%, wireless services, which is cell phone bills, were down 18.6% year over year. So the one meaningful cost for an average Canadian family that has seen deflation over the past few years is telecom. And I think that's why you did not see, you know, the, Ro the Rogers, Bell and Telus executives get dragged into Ottawa and have to answer questions about pricing because the industry proactively did this themselves. Absolutely. So within the staples, take us into the staples universe a little bit beyond grocers, what, what else we're talking about, because I want to get into some of these rate sensitive trends, the trade down ultimately we'll, we'll start talking about. I want to get your thoughts on that. But Tell us about Staples. It's been obviously a defensive area to be for those at the beginning of the year. The recession talk was very amped up really through throughout the year. Um, sometimes they got a bit expensive. Give us the landscape of where Staples sit now. Does anything look cheap at the moment? So I think that it's sort of in between. Um, okay. You're certainly not at potentially heading into 2023. And of course, you've seen the markets perform quite well in 2023, particularly the U.S. markets. There was a lot of concern. And so if you rewind the tape to December, Kind of 2022 valuations have been quite expensive across the board for staples and we've seen those valuations kind of through may obviously we had the regional banking concerns and crises that was also a tailwind for valuation since that time as inflation has abated and we haven't seen a recession yet i think that the sector has sort of come into this more of a middle ground in terms of valuation and similarly the fundamentals and more importantly how do their fundamentals stack up against the rest of the market the picture isn't as clear um, and so that's sort of gone through valuations and a bit of a reset there. In terms of broader picture trends, what we're really watching is trade down has been top of mind 
And of course, as we think into the consumer, as you referenced, rates for 2024 and all the pressure on the Canadian consumer as mortgage rates reset, as you just feel the continuation. Obviously, then there's the question about unemployment. We've seen trade down, which is going from uh, you know mainline local grocery store to a hard discounter, uh, or you know in other categories like dollar stores. Um, we've seen that trend because inflation was high. I think the question we're looking to in 2024 now is even if inflation isn't high, does that trend continue at a similar pace? Does it on the back like it of will? It, it feels like it's closer. It will be the exact same rate. Probably not, but will it be close to that elevated level because of the additional financial strain on consumers? That seems likelier. It doesn't feel like a normal year still for 2024. What, what would you add to that, Brendan? Yeah, I, I think it's completely right. I think when you look at the major issue for Canadian households, it's mortgage refinancing. And I, you do some math on the average mortgage holding of a Canadian family. Um, the average family, if you had a mortgage in 2019, uh, to 2024 to next year, you have to refi. Um, you're probably going to see around $6,500 of additional annual interest payments, uh, which breaks down to $540 a month. That's a lot of money for a Canadian fa- a Canadian family, right? You're thinking about the mi- the middle income, where they're going to get, where, where are they going to save that? They have to trade down. Um, so that's the driver where the initial wave of trade down was inflation related. I think the second wave is going to be uh, economic related. Um, and it's really easy, you know, the, the first wave w- was pretty simple. I mean, everyone can think of, you know, how would you as an advisor trade down um, to save a little bit of money? And so it's, you know, instead of Starbucks, you go to Tim Hortons. Instead of sit down restaurants, you go to fast food or, or um, instead of Loblaws, you go to no frills. The second wave in an economic uh, negative, a negative economic situation, instead of Tim Hortons coffee, maybe you buy some Folgers and make it at home. Um, instead of no frills, maybe you buy some groceries from Dollarama. Um, and instead of going for fast food, you make your food at home. You buy, you know, chicken and rice or frozen pizza, something like that, you know? So the next wave of trade down is the one that's maybe a little bit trickier. It's not as obvious, which is where we come in as analysts. But um, I think that's going to be the story of 2024's economic-related trade-down. So who does benefit there? So you've mentioned a lot of where the trade-down has come down to already. Mm-hmm. Once you go down to the next level, so Dollarama, um, we don't want to go into too many company names, but just the idea of where else is there to go if this is such a strong trend, you feel? Where, where, who benefits? Well, I think the people who have been benefiting or the companies that have been benefiting are going to continue to okay. benefit. Okay. So hard discount grocery formats, of course, you're still only closer to 50, 60% market share. That can continue to increase. As Brendan mentioned, some smaller format, really hard discounting stores, they could benefit. And then of course within restaurants, right? Even less uh, shopping at white tablecloth, even more at fast food and even from fast food and to food at home, which would benefit the grocers. So, so let's go into the labor story, which you've actually touched on a little bit here, but th- this is again, sort of potentially the next wave. Let's let's get into labor and, and also where, I mean, if we've heard of layoffs, it's been more white collar, generally speaking, than it has been for, for the industries that you cover. Is that, is that fair? That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. Okay, so it's it's more about perhaps the rate sensitivity and that, that spilling over how the consumer feels when the mortgages really do begin to bite in a new way. Um, let's talk about hard landing, soft landing, US versus Canada. We can go into some of that for both of the areas that you cover. The U.S. is in a different um, real estate situation, it appears. What, what do you think, Brendan? We'll begin with you. Yeah, sure. So for me, I think 
you know, we're seeing inflation come down. I, I like in my view, I think in, in the inflation dragon has probably been slain. I think we've seen the data points to support that. And there's so, cer- so, so that's that's my view and my view as as one analyst okay. on, on a team. Yeah. But yeah, that is my view. Um, and I think what the concern will be is is as interest rates peak out and as these cuts come in, are they proactive soft landing cuts or are they reactive recession cuts? Um, I think the U.S. is still a debate. I think there's still a potential for soft landing in the U.S. My concern is in Canada, where we do have a a much more mortgage rate sensitive environment and cutting rates before the U.S. means you do a lot of damage to the Canadian dollar. So the Bank of Canada is in a tough place, um, which increases risk of policy error. So that would just be the big dynamic between the two to watch out for. and, and which again means, you know, when when you're looking at the Canadian landscape and you're trying to understand if it's a soft landing or a hard landing, um, I, I remember um, we recently had a Palm Beach event that many advisors attended virtually and, and in person, uh, the lucky ones in person. Um, and Andrew Marchese, one of his key messages was, when you see the defensive laggards start to outperform again, that's probably a sign to, you know, you should you should have your you should be on high alert for the economy. And during this whole. Uh, the, the great November that we all just saw, um, I think it, one thing hidden in the data was the defensive laggards of telecom, of beating up real estate, they outperformed. Um, so, so that would just be one thing that I'm watching really closely on the U.S. versus Canada debate. Um, I think we're starting to see some signs of, of Canadian economic stress, and I think the stock market might be starting to move in that direction in Canada specifically. Andrew, what would you add to that? The staples are the defensive area. In a, in a downturn, it's a place that people turn. You mentioned that they they may have come back to more normal valuations. Take us into sort of how this would all look ultimately for your industry. Well, I think that if, it, again, to Brendan's point, if the rate cuts are still in a relatively benign economic environment, then you're for, closer to an early stage expansion. That would be the type of environment where grocery would tend to underperform because you're going to be excited about the relative earnings growth of other companies. But if it is recessionary cuts, uh, that would typically be an environment where grocery would do well. And as we referenced, there's a lot of strain on the Canadian consumer. It feels like the picture is less clear in, in the U.S. It feels like healthier balance sheets, healthier job numbers. And so the interplay of those dynamics, obviously the Canadian economy is very tied to the U.S. economy, sure. is going to make it a little bit more challenging and sort of choppy in terms of economic direction for the next six to 12 months. Okay, so for the investment there. Um, what would you say um, on on the kind of inventory restocking? This is more the, the supply chain story, but it, it's interesting to sort of take the temperature of that because it was such a wild story for so, so long. It sounds like inventories have come down. Bring us up to date on what you watch on this side. Sure, yeah, so the message I think is, it's good news, but no one cares. So, okay. <laughs> so, so the good news. Yeah, we'll start a short amount of time. This, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. So the good news is inventories are back to normal. Um, the bad news is just when they're back to normal, we saw some really weak October retail data out of the U.S. So everyone's concerned now. Great, you know, we did the Herculean task of getting inventories back down to normal. We discounted all the U.S. retailers did so, and now the consumer is starting to wobble. So everyone's just focused on consumer health right now. Um, but the inventory situation is back to normal, hence why you saw great discounts end of summer and you didn't see great discounts at Black Friday. So it could have been worse in a way if you hadn't eaten through the inventory that was, that was stuck there. And it, what about inventories? Would you watch the sort of supply chain that is different 
one way or the other for you? So I think that within the food sector, there were you know, some challenges of you got in the classic trap of overbuying because you were worried about being short. And of course, prices also increased substantially, particularly on commodities, meat, fish, all those sorts of commodities. And so there were pretty substantial inventory positions, but it's not generally the same dynamic as uh, retail. So you don't see that same sort of dynamic of discounting. I think the bigger picture story as we touched on a little bit is labor. And yeah, so in 2021, mm-hmm. everyone was hair on fire looking for entry level jobs because they laid off, laid off a lot of people during COVID and now they needed them all back because the economy was going back it, right? and they paid up for it. And then in 2022, that started to ease a little bit. I think the first half of 23 and into the second half, we've seen that ease further. So wage gains are close, are, are coming down. I think that uh, staffing levels are generally a lot closer to 100% or back to normal pre-COVID levels. Um, but what you are seeing is a bit of a lagged impact for some union uh, or co- collective bargaining agreements where they may not have seen their, their wage rates improve yet. Of course, we saw that with the auto workers yes. um, you know, down there in, in Detroit. And we've seen that with strikes at a grocery store, which almost never happens. Uh, the outcome of that necessarily didn't necessarily point to more strikes, and we haven't seen any since. Um, but it is true that generally labor rates uh, for you know, long-term labor agreements with collective bargaining have been certainly higher than average than they were pre-COVID. I wonder if you could just spend a minute on sort of the margin story at grocers, because I mean, for years the story was they're just really thin margins. I mean, that's that's what it is. It's why it's a staple. Um, you don't make a ton of money off of them. Everyone needs it, essentially. So so that's where it is. That changed in COVID for good and bad. It was expensive for people, but some stores, maybe this is more of a discretionary story, were able to up their prices for the first time in like a couple decades, really, in some cases. So where, where does sort of the margin story sit, or is it the same? I don't think the margin story for grocery has changed a whole lot. I think on average, they're probably up a little bit. What you remember is when you see your politicians talking about record yeah. profits, what they're talking about less so is the percentage margin and more that if everything costs 10% more, then even if you're in the same margin, you are getting that additional profit uh, to your bottom line. And so that's maybe where uh, there would be some political concerns or frustration. But it's certainly not the case that if inflation was running at 10% in food for certain parts of the year, margins for grocers are still kind of in that low to mid single digit range. So they didn't change by more than 100 basis points. That would be one point of the inflation. So certainly, even if you set grocery profits to zero, that wouldn't have fixed food inflation. Has the labor story abated for grocers? I mean, as you said, it was unusual to see a strike at a grocery chain, but has has it sort of abated? Maybe out of the fall economic statement, I mean, it just didn't seem like they were gonna take any action. Have they, has that cooled? I think that 2023 was a heavy renegotiation year. They're now set up into 2024 with some you know, decently high uh, labor rate increases. And a lot of those agreements are now behind them. So in terms of labor noise, 2024 should shape up better. But in terms of the wage rate pressure, that should be similar or maybe a little bit higher than 2023. That's fascinating. Maybe to add to the labor story from sort of discretionary side. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I, I think in general, um, yeah, labor, labor is a lot more available. Um, and especially I, I deal with fast food companies. Um, so they are not having as hard of a time hiring. Um, I think in general, the rates paid has normalized. And you know all the franchisees I speak with, everyone is saying that the actual ingredients that they buy, you know, poultry, beef, um, even some textile companies that buy cotton, all those prices have basically normalized. And we're back to normal inflation. The one labor is maybe a little bit above what they've considered normal inflation rate. But compared to a year ago, it's a completely different situation. Now, the one asterisk for this discussion 
is California, where they just implemented uh, fast food minimum wage changes. So now $20 an hour for fast food. Um, seems like no other states are, are going to follow this and seems like Canada isn't going to follow this. Uh, wait and see what happens in California. But um, that's one situation where there is government mandated wage pressure still. But in all areas where it's more of a free market, um, wage rates have nearly normalized. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on on the auto sector? Can we, can we dig into that? Sure. Yeah. So um, so we just had the UAW. Um, the UAW uh, got their the, most of what they wanted. Um, the strikes are over and, and they, all the, the deals have been ratified among the big three. Um, so now that we have a scenario where uh, the labor situation is understood, um, we're going into 2024 with a North American supply system that has structurally underproduced autos for basically four years. Amazing. So, uh, so yeah. So there's an inventory starting. Yeah. So, so the U.S. used to produce a 17 to 18 million cars a year. They've been producing at around 14 to 15 all throughout COVID. And the most recent print that we just got was 15.3, like like uh, last week. So so still structurally undersupplying. So the debate now is if we're going into a recession, recession is normally bad for autos. So should you avoid the sector just on that fear? or um, the structural undersupply portion and that recovery of going back from 15 to 17 million cars, um, is that possible? And to unpack that just a little bit more is, my view is it is possible because- To prop it up. To get back to those normal levels because I don't think there's been big demographic changes. I think the car park, which is you know the, your average vehicle driving around, yeah. it's a lot older than it was. It breaks down, you need a new car. Um, millennials are finally forming households, having kids, a little bit of a baby boom going going on. So they need cars for that. Um, and then finally, um, so, so, you know, I think we get back to 17 to 18 million units. Um, it might be bumpy along the way and where that bumpiness could come out is on pricing. So no longer, you know, can everyone afford an $80,000 SUV like you could two years ago and 0% interest rates. OEMs have to change what they sell. But the, the actual supply base, I think, can probably benefit from supplying more cars, albeit at a lower price for the OEMs. Um, this question is also for you, but I'm noticing that we're talking about everything that is not luxury. Mm-hmm. Uh, so questions come in on luxury. So that, that will go to you. But sure. it is interesting that in such a trade down discussion, where, where does this leave luxury? Yeah, so luxury has been really interesting where I think we're finally starting to see cracks in luxury now. And, and you know, the fifth quintile, the highest income consumers in Canada in the globe really have, have been extremely resilient. Um, we've started to see wage growth trends deviate where actually the lower income part of the, of the economy is growing wages faster than the high income. And it seems to now be influencing spending. So we've been seeing cracks in, in a lot of, lot of the European luxury houses, um, we have a couple Canadian higher income exposed retailers. Um, they've not been doing great. They've been reporting pretty weak sales. So it seems like in particular, the aspirational luxury customer um, who is not buying $5,000 jackets, but maybe $1,500, you know, parkas and that kind of thing. We're starting to see some real signs of stress in the aspirational luxury. Um, so you just got to be careful between luxury and aspirational luxury. So I wanted to devote uh, some time that we have left, Andrew, to um, to talk about weight loss drugs and what it ultimately means for for the grocers. And I mean, even more broadly, you hear about how this is going to affect, obviously, healthcare companies. But what does it mean, do you think, for for the grocers? 
Walmart said, actually, people are buying differently or they will. Yeah, so I think it's it's very early days. Absolutely, the retailers and the food processors, manufacturers, they're all in the fact-finding stage. So in terms of real material impact in 2023 or 2024, uh, that's not going to be an issue. But as usual, it's the question of you overestimate the change in five years, you underestimate the change in 10 years. And that kind of axiom, I think that the big delineation here is what does coverage look like? If insurance broadly, insurance coverage, because these are very expensive drugs. And a lot of the people, uh, unfortunately, who benefit the most from them are also lower income consumers. They may not have the best private health insurance, so they might be relying on Medicare or or other public option uh, healthcare to uh, fund those drugs. And of course, how long can they stay on them too? Because, you know, a year, two years. And so that's the big question. I think that the answer for retailers is that the impact should be fairly small because it'll be a shift maybe from caloric dense foods, snacking towards actually more expensive stuff that might be a bit healthier, but um, not a huge volume. It's more so on food companies that sell a certain type of product where they have disproportionate sales in ice cream or chocolate. That would be potentially more at risk and a bigger question. I think that that remains to be seen. We'll see, again, what's the insurance coverage look like and how long can people stay on the drugs? And there are some side effects. You know, it's not a oral form yet. It's a bit more um, serious with the, with the shot. And so do people want to do that for five years? Because most of the evidence says if they do it and they get off the drug, you gain the weight back. So it is a, you can see how it would be a food company question maybe first, but will the grocers buy differently, I guess? That is what we're waiting to see, is it? I mean... I think, yeah, again, and again, I wouldn't expect to see any kind of impact in the next two years. But beyond that, we don't know for sure. It might mean that, yeah, you know, you always have to respond to consumer trends and say people buy a lot more avocado and kale than they did 10 years ago. Right. But as long as you're spending (laughs) as long as you're spending a similar hundred dollars or whatever your weekly grocery bill is, the retailers are pretty agnostic. But with those category shifts, that can be very powerful for a given food manufacturer, because they might only sell into a narrow category. That's so fascinating. What, what kind of final messages do you want to leave um, with all the investors today in the framework? What do you want, they want to watch? Yeah. Discretionary story. Yeah, so I think for me, the final message to leave is probably just the playbook for, mm-hmm. for you know, how, how the world can, can evolve over the next um, 12 to 24 months, where um, typically, I, I think as Andrew alluded to earlier, there's a big difference between if we are going into a late cycle or early stage recovery where we can kind of skip the late cycle and just go straight into a soft landing scenario. Um, those are going to be, it's going to have a huge implication in the Canadian market in particular um, where we're so mortgage exposed. So I would just, I, I, would, I would leave the message that um, if you have a view that a recession is coming and you want to get more defensive, um, the time to do so is not at the bottom of the cycle or whatever happens. Um, you know, speak to your fidelity, your fidelity rep. Um, we have funds that are more uh, defensively positioned available now, um, and that might be better suited for you. But my, my message is start planning for that now um, because you do not want to be switching into, you know, from an offensive into defensive at the bottom of the cycle. That, that's how you can damage uh, client, you know, client wealth on a long-term basis. So we have options. I think we have a pretty good idea of where the economy is going. Our fund managers do. Um, I think everyone's positioned. Um, we're all kind of aligned. But my message would be just do the work now, um, yeah. not at the bottom of the cycle. And a, kind of a final thought, uh, Andrew, that, that maybe it's the same, but what, what do you think you want to leave about the, the coverage area that you, that you take a look at every single day, every hour? 
So I think that you mentioned it's every hour, right? Mm -hmm. What sometimes is, is hard for us to understand is that because we're looking so deeply at these things every day, they play out on a longer time scale than we sort of feel. Maybe we're seeing it six months in advance and we're just waiting for it to happen a little bit. And so what you've seen is, I think everyone was very concerned about a recession exiting 2022 into 2023. And of course that caught people a lot wrong footed, uh, particularly once we got past the regional banking uh, crisis concerns. Um, now we're in a bit of a different situation, right? Where we're no longer at peak expensive and you're not necessarily for, for defensives. And so again, it pays to uh, at times take that a bit of a contrarian view and remind yourself that, uh, you know, whatever the most recent direction of the market, it, you know, tends to reverse. October was an awful month. November was an awesome month. Mm -hmm. And just remember the broader time scale, of course, and the big long-term um, picture within all that, because we're talking about kind of positioning on a short-term basis. These are great thoughts. Brendan and Andrew, can't thank you enough for, for sharing with everyone in an important shopping time of the year to kind of get us all started. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. On fidelity.ca, you can also find more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.